Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest is Jim Capsis, founder of the Ad Hoc Group, an advisory firm that helps startups build successful businesses in complex regulated markets with a focus on energy, mobility, and sustainable cities. Jim's been a senior advisor to Sidewalk Labs, Alphabet's urban venture, and spent six years building and leading the global regulatory team at Opower, from startup to IPO to acquisition by Oracle in 2016. Before entering the private sector, Jim was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, where he helped broker the Copenhagen Climate Accord in 2009. He also worked in the U.S. Treasury, state and defense departments, and in Congress. I was excited for this one because the policy and regulatory landscape is so important for climate tech startups across a wide range of sectors. Jim comes from that world and works with climate tech startups and big corporates. We have a great discussion in this episode about the policy and regulatory landscape, how to think about it as a startup or a larger corporate, how to resource to it, the different steps and tactics to get stuff done, as well as some of the gotchas and lessons learned that Jim's seen in his years of working in this area. Jim, welcome to the show. Jason, thanks for having me. Really great to be here. Well, thanks for coming. And gosh, you are so deep in an area that is becoming so near and dear to my heart, which is with a growing portfolio of startups that we work with in climate tech across industries and segments. There's a common theme, which is that policy matters a lot to a lot of those companies. That's what you do, right? That's what we're here for, for sure. You can't ignore policy if you're in the climate space. It's just, it's part of the landscape, a big part of it, depending on where you are. It's a really big part. That's why I might need to go back to building fitness apps again. <laughs> <laughs> it does seem maybe, not that it's easy to win and compete in any market, but you probably don't have to worry 
about the policy environment in quite the same way. Nor do you need your PhD in material science. Also true, which neither of us has. So <laughs> we both fail on that front. Well, what is the Ad Hoc Group? We can just take it from the top. Ad Hoc Group, we're a focused consultancy that's really working exclusively with climate tech and sustainability focused startups, some larger corporates. And our mission really is to support their growth and their scale and helping them with everything that relates to their go-to-market. But as you sort of indicated in the lead-in, I think what differentiates us and the reason that I started the company a little more than four years ago was that a lot of startups fundamentally, the startup founders, maybe they're engineers or maybe they're business folks, they tend not to be policy experts and former government people. They might be, but that tends to be rare. And in climate tech and sustainability broadly, if you don't understand policy and regulation to a certain extent, you don't understand your market. And so you might have a great technology and a great solution to a problem, but you just will not be able to bring it to market and commercialize it if you don't really understand how policy and regulation affect that market. I like kind of view us as the Sherpas for startups and startup founders that are trying to figure out how does policy and regulation impact our business and how can we use our understanding of it to either get to market at the right place at the right time faster and avoid mistakes or shape the market so that we can have a lot of white space to grow in. How'd you get into doing policy work for climate tech startups and corporates? I'm a recovering government guy. I mean that with the greatest compliment to government service, which I loved my time in government. But I spent about 10 years in the beginning of my career, first on Capitol Hill. I actually worked for a member of Congress who has since retired. His bumper stacker said, my congressman is a rocket scientist because he was one of the very few PhDs in Congress and used to run the Princeton Plasma Physics Lab, which is basically a fusion lab up at Princeton. So he was a very unusual member, but I started my career on the Hill and then was in the executive branch for a number of years, really started in the national security realm, which is a little bit of a story I can tell you a bit about if you're interested. My last job, though, was at the U.S. Treasury Department as a climate negotiator in the early Obama administration. And I left sort of after Copenhagen, the climate summit didn't deliver what Paris eventually did. And after sort of the big cap and trade bill of the time, the Waxman market bill failed, I jumped ship to at the time we called the clean tech sector to join a company called Opower, which I think you've talked about on the show. And I think you interviewed the founder, Dan Yates, early in your tenure running this great podcast. And I was hired to grow and scale the regulatory and market development team at Opower, which was a large part of the, I think, special sauce of the company that helped us succeed. And then took that playbook after we went public and got acquired by Oracle and said, what I love the most about Opower was building the startup. That was the fun part for me. And I wanted to go and kind of bring that playbook to other startups that were trying to do important things and solve problems we needed to solve to actually address climate. And so that's why I started the business. And coming out of the Waxman Markey era, what were some key learnings and lessons learned there? And then maybe talk a little bit about the decision to transition and what led you down the early stage startup path. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, going back a little bit, I got into climate a little bit by accident. I mean, I know you've had your own meandering path to get here. And I think a lot of folks probably in the MCJ network feel the same way where like they had an awakening at a certain point where like, wow, like what can I do? I want to get involved. And I was really a product from a career perspective in government of 9-11. When I went and worked on the Hill, it was literally two months after the towers got hit. 
And so everything I did for many years was really about national security. And for those of us who recall in 08, right before the financial crisis, we had an almost an energy crisis. We had $140 a barrel oil and I was trying to get smart on energy. And everywhere I was, whatever I worked on in the government, I worked on NATO expansion. I worked on Iraq, Middle East policy. Someone's dependence on fossil fuel was totally messing with what the U.S. wanted to do overseas from a policy perspective. And so I was like, I got to get into energy. And that's really kind of a backwards way I got into climate was I didn't like the fact that we were also dependent on fossil fuel. And then, of course, the huge environmental right issues that it's caused. That's why I ended up in the Treasury Department. With Waxman Markey getting to that point, the reason that I decided to leave is I'm a big believer, whether it's in business or politics, that it's all about timing and opportunity. And if you're a founder or if you're, frankly, a politician and you pick the wrong moment to do the big thing, to launch the new idea or to run the campaign, it's just not going to work. And in early Obama administration, when Copenhagen didn't really fully deliver and when Wax and Markey died, Obama, he had used up all his political capital on really healthcare and didn't have enough left to get over the hump on climate. And so where were the opportunities? Going back to your question, like why early stage startups? And I jumped to Opower into startup world because to me, what was really happening at that time was that the innovation in the policy world was all happening at the state level, not the federal level. I mean, in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had renewable portfolio standards and energy efficiency standards getting implemented in number of states across the country, which really is what was the fuel for a lot of startups early on, whether the solar companies or the energy efficiency companies like Opower. And to me, like it was the startups that were actually, because of those policies, beginning to bring real solutions to the market. And that's where I wanted to be. And that's why I jumped to Opower and in terms of the ad hoc group and wanting to start that company, it was, I just can't get enough. I'm a kid at the candy store like you, I think, in terms of wanting to get engaged in all these different verticals and help startups succeed. One of the things you hear again and again as a founder or as an investor, for that matter, is that you shouldn't build things that depend on future policy to be successful. At the same time, stuff takes years to build. And so if policy changes and you're just starting from square one at that time, you're probably too late. So, I mean, I said that as a statement, but really it's a question. How should one navigate that as a founder or as an investor? Do you try to skate to where the puck is going or do you really need to wait until that policy is in place before you choose your path? Let me throw that back at you first, Jason. I mean, you're an investor. How do you think about it? Oh, man. Well, I mean, prior to working in climate, what, I'd never really been a professional investor, nor had I done anything that was so heavily intertwined with the policy landscape. So I'm very much building the plane as I'm flying the plane. But how I think about it is that you want to bet on things that can stand on their own two feet, absence of policy, but to the extent that policy can be an accelerant, then even better. But relying on it is hard. There are some exceptions, though. I mean, carbon removal is one that comes to mind where, I mean, if you look at the models, no matter how you do the math, we're going to need it. And so you can say, well, but there'll never be a market for it. And it's like, well, there'll never be a market for it unless the government steps in. And then it's like, well, you can't rely on the government stepping in. It's like, well, how can they not? They cannot. <laughs> but I think that's a pretty good way of 
thinking about it. I think the challenge on the investor side is there's no doubt you are taking a bigger swing at the bat when you're investing in a company where the market's not yet really there and relies on policy. This is the challenge of climate tech. And it's the reason why traditional VC has kind of come and gone because they get scared when stuff doesn't happen the way that they want it to, which I understand because they're trying to earn returns for their LPs. And hopefully we're at a different moment right now. But the reality is that there is going to be a big policy component. And that is part of the go-to-market strategy of these companies and needs to be. I guess that's part of my mantra, which is if you are a founder or investor in this space, you better get smart on the policy and regulatory environment as it stands and figure out what you need it to be in order to grow the business and then make a reasonable assessment of like, how do we get it there? And can we get it there in a reasonable time frame? whether you're an investor or whether you're a startup, and then make sure you're allotting enough resources in that area. But you need to be realistic because no single startup is going to move the federal government or even a state government for that matter. So in terms of stages, how early is too early to think about policy as a young company? And how early is too early to act and resource towards policy? And is that consistent if you look across companies and sectors or does it vary on a case-by-case basis? Well, first of all, I think most founders and investors should be thinking about it from day zero. When you're thinking about your TAM, your total addressable market and your surplus addressable market and all of that, the regulatory and policy landscape, it should be integrated into that analysis, both as the way the world is today and what you think that growth trajectory will actually be and how that market will grow and what assumptions, what do you have to believe? to believe that the market's going to get to where you think it's going to get because of policy and regulation. Now, whether you invest and how much, I think, is totally variable based on the company and where exactly you are. I mean, if you're in a fairly mature market, if you're a company in the solar space, well, there's a lot of policy already there, but you need to understand it. But there are lots of folks who can help you sort of navigate it. So your level of investment, while it needs to exist, you may be able to rely on others a lot more than if you're sort of in a fresher, newer space. So like carbon removal, or I would say technologies that are companies that are trying to figure out carbon accounting and all the schema and what is that going to look like over time, which like right now is largely a voluntary market. So there is a market. But how do you ensure that that market actually evolves so it's not just a voluntary market, but it's actually a robust, mandatory market of some variety? So that's the beginning of an answer, Jason. Well, and it sounds like, so there's understanding the policy landscape, and then you said in mature markets, there's probably policy in place, but in less mature markets, you actually want to kind of try to steer what does get in place. What about tactically? So in those markets where... You do actually want to try to play a role in steering. What would one even do? And I want to start there before then the follow-up, which is how to think about what things to do in-house and what things to outsource. But just first of all, just no matter who does it, what would one even do as a company that cares about what policy gets put in place to try to steer that ship? Thing one is to really understand the market as it is today. And so studying, whether that's doing it internally or whether it's working with an outside firm, let's say you're in the energy market in some way and sort of utility regulation matters to you, something we spend a lot of time on. Well, you better have a pretty good sense of 
the regulatory constructs in the states. And you better learn that first if your business is either selling to utilities or if it's selling next to utilities adjacent but to consumers, but that's dependent upon in some way, shape, or form either incentives that come from state regulation that are delivered via utilities or that come from market rules that might be both shaped at the public utility commission level or at the wholesale market level to get really wonky on folks. But that's where you'd start is just understand the landscape is like thing one. It's hard to know what to go shape and how to go shape it if you don't just have the foundation. So I think the first thing to do is just understand the market and how it relates to your business in some sort of sophisticated way. And then you can kind of look at, okay, where are things moving? I think you said this before, where's the puck going? And then when it comes to trying to figure out what to shape, the easiest things to get involved in when you're, let's say at the early to mid stage, so let's just say series A type company-ish, is when the train is already moving, getting on and steering it just a little bit in a direction that you want to go. Like you're not gonna be the entity that gets the train out of the station to begin with, but know what the processes are and where the discussions are happening and then get involved in some way to just move them with others out and build allies to then move things in the direction that it's going to create more opportunity for you. In terms of, I was jotting some notes as you were talking there, and one vector I'm curious about is seniority level at the different stages of company. And if you do want policy help, whether it's junior or senior. Another one is domain expertise versus generalist and how to think about which capabilities carry over from sector to sector and when you might want sector-specific expertise. And I guess a third that I didn't write down, but that I'm thinking about as we're talking here is hire or consultant that's kind of integrated with the team versus an outside firm like the ad hoc group. When it's time to hire someone full-time at the startup level, Generally speaking, I think it's good to hire someone who's sort of in the middle that's like not super junior, but also not super senior, because like with startups in general, you want someone who can sprint and who's like, in some regards, like we talk about in the industry, like an athlete, so to speak, because the environment that you're in is dynamic. Just as it's dynamic in sort of the quote unquote market, it's also dynamic on the policy and regulatory front. So I think you want a hard charger, but someone who's going to have credibility with the policy and regulatory and stakeholder community and who may have come from that world, but ideally has spent some time ideally in the private sector or ideally has worked, let's say, in multiple sectors, if that's nonprofit government. I think it is very difficult and I did it. And so it's certainly not impossible, but it's particularly difficult, I think. So it takes a unicorn like yourself, Jim. Well, we used to call this at OPAL. We were hiring <laughs> unicorns. I mean, on the team in ad hoc group, we do a lot of hiring for companies for that reason, that there are people coming out of government that can be trained and can be effective. But I had a steep learning curve. First of all, I had no idea what a public utility commission was when I first started at OPAL. I pretended that I did to get the job. I really did. I did my homework. I faked it till I made it. But just like the business brain and sort of understanding what matters to a business is typically not something that is innate or it's not something you've learned if your career has been in government. So it does have to be learned. And there's some people I think that I would say someone who's spent time in politics versus policy is almost more likely 
I think, to understand the transition to business. Because the first time I showed up at O-Power in 2010, I walked in, there were pizza boxes everywhere, and everyone was like 25 years old. And I was like, oh, I know what this looks like. This is a political campaign. And so anyone's worked on a political campaign, that's what it is. It's like young people in pizza boxes everywhere. And that's what a startup is. And so I do think someone who's had that like experience of sprinting in a campaign environment, which is, by the way, you believe. I believe in this idea and this person who's running and they need to get elected. That's what it's like to work for a startup in the climate world that's like mission driven. We have a solution. We have to bring it to the world. We want to make a business that makes money. Yeah. But there's a thing we have to solve. That's the kind of person that you want, I think, in a role as a first hire for one of these at the startup level. And then, I don't know, Jason, we can talk about when do you outsource and all of that. In my experience, a lot of companies aren't ready to hire that person off the bat because they want to build the foundation themselves in this sort of C-suite to understand the landscape and the market. And so often where we come in is that we're often brought in by a founder or by the founding team to help them kind of really get smart on how to think about the market and how to integrate policy and regulation into their go-to-market strategy and into their sales strategy. And then to sort of be the part-time outsource team in the trenches with them, I mean, on a part-time basis, but largely doing that outbound work on their behalf with them when it makes sense, but also not with them on our own to advance their interests. And when they get to the point where they need the full-time hire, we will help them hire that person, onboard them, and then our role ends up becoming less and less over time. And we ended up kind of being the coach and mentor to that person who's come in that we helped hire. And then either we disappear, which is sort of the natural progression in terms of the evolution of these startups, or we're just sort of there for advice over time. What are some examples of types of companies and policy areas that might be fertile ground and high ROI for companies to try to invest resources towards? And then what are some examples of maybe quicksand or areas that might be more of a black hole from a resource standpoint? And it'd be great as a follow-up to talk about some of the tactics to actually move the needle in some of those fertile areas. I mean, I think one fertile area, just because of the moment we're in, is building electrification. There is just this acknowledgement in the market and in the policy world at the state level, at the federal level, that we've got to electrify our transportation system largely. We need to electrify our buildings and we need to begin moving off of dirty thermal energy like oil and propane and natural gas. And I will say, and we do some of this work for a couple of companies, Dandelion being one, which is a residential geothermal business. And when we go and we talk to policymakers, they're excited to see us. They're happy we reached out. They want to know what the companies are doing in this space because they're really hungry for the solutions and they want to know what can we do to make it easier for companies like yours, not you specifically, but companies like yours to enter our market and help us make the switch. And that is just not the way that sometimes these kinds of conversations go. In the early days of O-Power going down to the Texas PUC and trying to explain to the regulators what behavioral energy efficiency is and why they should care, it was an uphill battle. Like They didn't care. But I think building electrification is a big one. I think anything related to transportation and electrification right now, certainly, I mean, at the state level and the federal level, there's just a lot of interest from the policy community in what can we do, what should we be doing 
to accelerate this transition. So those are like both examples where I would say the train is definitely leaving the station and there's opportunity to influence where it goes. And there are folks who really want to hear from startups and what they're building, but also what policies and regulatory constructs would help them get into the market faster. So those are, I think, a couple maybe really positive areas. What's quicksand? That's a great question. I think, generally speaking, if you require a federal mandate to operate as a business, although we are in a unique moment, it might be quicksand. I struggle to think about a particular technology or category that falls into that, I guess, potential trap, but I would just put it out there as a thought experiment. If you're looking at a company where there is no voluntary market of any significant size, and it would require massive change in national policy for things to take off, that's probably quicksand. That's a bank shot. Like It's just it's not a good bet. I will say until recently, I would have put carbon removal in that category. I'm not sure it's there anymore. And part of that is because a voluntary market has emerged. I mean, because of what Stripe has done and other companies, there is now at least a voluntary market. There's discussion, again, at the federal level. There's discussions in Congress about how to incentivize it through the tax code, through 45Q and arcane parts of the tax code like that. And so I do think it's not as deep and dangerous quicksand as it was, let's say, maybe three or four years ago. What about you? What are you seeing anything like that that you think of? Any companies come to you recently looking for your investment and you're just like, no way, because that's too far away, too hard? Not for regulatory reasons specifically. If you take, say, building electrification, for example, which you mentioned is a fertile area, if I'm a startup that's working in that area, what are some examples of what types of levers I could influence on the policy landscape? And then how would I influence them? And what would my objectives be such that it would help further my business interests and the mission, of course? Of course. So there are these processes that happen at the state level where utilities are investing dollars in incentives and rebates to install stuff in buildings, basically. And it's on a cycle. So those plans literally get filed to the regulators, generally speaking, once every three years. And so, and this is where we do a lot of this work, figuring out what's the timing of when that next filing is going to be backwards plan to figure out, okay, when do I start needing to have conversations with not just the regulators, but all the stakeholders that they talk to, the environmental groups, the consumer advocates, maybe some of the other companies that care about where the market is going and then engage at that right time and figure out what do you want to see differently in that next plan and then make sure you're talking to the utilities too because they're the ones filing the plan. It's kind of like RFPs. Any startup or any business person knows that if you get the RFP at the back end after it's come out already and you never talk to anyone who was writing it beforehand, your chances of winning that RFP aren't not impossible, but probably not very high. It's kind of like the regulatory world. If you didn't get in at the right time and start having those conversations early with the people who are both writing the plans, but also who are going to approve them on the regulatory side or influence them from the stakeholder side, you'll get in too late and it will be a fait accompli and maybe you'll get lucky and it will look okay for you. Or the details will be such that the market maybe is shut out for you or 
there's a problem that it's too late to solve and you have to wait another three years before you can actually engage in a meaningful way. If you look across areas, and I'll just say hypothetically, but let's say building electrification is one fertile area, let's say food and ag, or more specifically, say all protein, maybe that's another one, or carbon removal, or grid storage. If you start mapping out these areas that are all climate-related, but really different sports as it relates to the sectors themselves, how much crossover is there? So if you take on these clients, for example, within the ad hoc group, is it the same people that are doing the work across sectors, or does it require more sector-specific expertise? And also, is that just a philosophical thing? Like in venture, there are generalist venture investors, and there's ones that only do AI and machine learning, or that only do SaaS. How does it work in the policy world? We're trying to do all things in sort of climate and sustainability realm that's big, as you said, and it's broad. I think that there is a functional skill set, which is an approach and a playbook that applies across the board, which is just how do I build my business in a particular way, taking into consideration regulatory and policy? How do I sell effectively or more effectively into a market based off of understanding of policy and regulation? And I think that applies across the board. When it comes to subject matter expertise, I think we come with a lot of it based on the folks that are on the team. And then we also learn along the way by working with companies in new spaces and getting smarter, I guess, faster. And that is part of what we do. And frankly, it's part of what's fun about working in the space is that there's a lot to learn. And it's like almost infinite capacity to like learn about new parts of the market. I do think there's a lot of overlap, though. I think that you talk about the tax code, it's different sections, but it's the same kind of process that's determining the carbon capture and sequestration market on the federal level as it is the investment tax credits that impact solar and fuel cells and geothermal. I would say that when you start talking about things like ag or that are divorced from energy and utilities, and we do water-related work too, we've done less in that particular space. But once it kind of crosses over, and it does, I think we're well-suited. So like if you're on the investor side, where you are, I mean, I have a bias towards generalists who know enough to be dangerous, who then know how to get a hold of the right specialist to get the thing done that it needs to get done. Unless if you're pretty sophisticated though, and you're already fairly advanced as a company and you know the thing you have to get done and it's highly esoteric and specific, I think that's when you hire a specialist to go execute on something. And I would almost put like lobbyists are a kind of specialist in my mind. I get asked a lot, how should we think about lobbyists, Jim? When should we use them? And in my experience, lobbyists need to have somebody at the company who understands enough about the policy and regulatory environment to know what the strategy actually should be. Because a lobbyist isn't going to tell you the policy that's going to help your business or the rule. They're going to tell you how to get the thing done that you think is needed for your business and how to do it. And then they will help you go execute it. And so in that case, when you're hiring like lobbyists, making sure that you're hiring folks that actually can get the thing done that you need to get done, I think is very important. So we talked about sector generalists or sector expertise versus generalists. What about local versus state versus national versus other countries and other parts of the world? Internationally, once you start talking about global, I think there is a functional expertise that helps. But with any market, 
having folks that are in that market that understand the market and have relationships in that market, I think is really important. And so at least from where I'm sitting, almost everything we do is in the US and Canada. Have I done international work? Sure. At Opower, I ran a global team, but I would most likely, if I knew a company that was trying to go break into Europe, would find them the European counterpart of the ad hoc group to go work with and wouldn't be the best fit for a company going in that direction, given like at least the way we built the company. I've got folks who, whether they're full-time, whether they're part of our advisors that are former regulators, former city officials, or former utility and or startup or investor type folks who are working with us. And so that helps us at least in the US and maybe in Canadian level, work at both the municipal, state, and federal level, certainly from a strategic or a business development and market development perspective. And do you always work with individual companies or do the trade groups, for example, ever engage with a firm like yours? We have up to this point worked with companies and have not gone the trade group route very often. I think there's one exception. We've done some work with one of the geothermal associations, partly because it also kind of was a good adder because we were already working in the space for Danaline and the company in that market. And so it made sense. But generally, at least we try to focus on working with companies. And there are other folks that spend a lot of time both working with trade groups and or starting them. There's like a whole cottage industry of firms that will stand up a trade group that's very hyper-specific. What's the one? There's the sort of zero emission one, Zev or Zeta, I'm forgetting the name of it, that's relatively new, started last year, and was run by a guy, Joe Britton, who also runs a firm. And folks do that. Gramlick's got a couple of organizations that he has started, and he runs a firm too. It's a model. It's not something that we do. And you mentioned that you work with clean tech or climate tech companies exclusively. Breakthrough Energy Ventures, for example, they define their version of climate tech is that it's got to be a half a gigaton threshold. And that's kind of a checkbox up front. And then they evaluate it like a normal investment. When you're taking on new clients, how do you define whether it's a climate tech company or not? And I'll give you an example. If Let's say an oil and gas company approached you and they wanted your help to enact a wear your sweater campaign. Is that a climate tech initiative? And where do you draw the line? We have a checklist internally as a team that we run through on like what's a good fit. And one of those is, and one of the big ones is climate and mission alignment. We also have a no asshole rule, <laughs> which is like pretty important when you're working closely with folks is to make sure there's a good fit from a cultural perspective with the team you're working with. But we will do things in both the mitigation area and in the resilience or adaptation area. So we do some work, for example, on the sort of wildfire side with a company called Pano that we're pretty excited about. Certainly we're broader than, let's say, just mitigation. And we don't only do, let's say, pure climate. Again, we're also doing things that are more like, I'd say, broadly sustainability. So water, which you could argue is generally resilience oriented, but there are various water startups that we've worked with that may be about helping utilities better manage their water systems so they don't lose water. We've talked to some companies that do things like around drinking water and keeping it safe. So it's not all 100% climate, but it is all in the sustainability realm and largely climate. But yeah, if someone came to us like a big oil company about a wear the sweater campaign, we would not do that. What if a big oil company came to you about something that was putting impact more front and center? I think 
case by case basis. I mean, we worked with Green Lots for a long period of time. And while we were working with them, Shell bought them. And I actually thought it was a great opportunity for us and for me to spend time inside one of the world's largest oil companies to see how are they thinking about this? Did they make this investment on a lark for optics or is this like core strategy? And is there a way from the inside to really help move things forward? And at least in that one example, and of course, I mean, Shell's a big company, but I spent some time in Houston meeting with members of the Shell team soon after the acquisition with the Greenlots team. And as oil companies go, they were thinking about things in a pretty serious way. On the other hand, I think at the time, at least they have 40,000 gas stations all over the world. That's not awesome, but we're going to have to get them off of that somehow. I guess I would say that there are occasions where I do think it is important to figure out how to work from inside big organizations to move the needle. And we've done work for utilities. Exelon is a longtime client. And I think folks may have mixed feelings sometimes about utilities. I do for sure. They're not all utilities are the same by any means, but they're not all terrible. And even so, like we're not going to solve these big challenges if we can't at least get a large percentage of utilities to go the right direction and transition to renewables and stop blocking different reforms in wholesale markets that make it harder for distributed energy resources to participate. And so knowing what's going on inside and being part of that, I think is important. I think it's part of the value that our team brings to the industry is that we sort of work in between the startups, some of the bigger corporates, including the utility sector and the investors. And that gives us a little bit of visibility into how one understands the other. And I think that's important because it can be some of these big companies, whether it's oil and gas or utilities, or even like big tech, when you're a startup on the outside looking up at the Goliath, it can be like a brick wall to try to understand what's happening on the other side. And frankly, they feel the same way about startups. I don't know if you've had a lot of conversations from these big corporates, but they have a hard time knowing how to like engage startups, which ones are real and which ones are not real. And so we are, we're kind of in that middle space, which I really enjoy. And if you look at the landscape of the companies that are building the products and services in these areas and the people that are working on policy in these areas, how integrated are they today? So putting the ad hoc group aside, just what's the state of the state? Is it quite siloed? Are they integrated? Is there talent that lives at that intersection? Where are we today and where do we need to be? You mean specifically like within the startups in terms of how they're organizing themselves? Well, yeah. So the companies that are building the products that rely on this regulatory landscape, how looped in are they generally to what's happening on the policy side? And then same thing with the people that are advocating and doing the policy work, how looped in are they to the companies that are in the trenches building the products? So where are we today and where do we need to be? And how much talent exists that has one foot in each of those camps like you do? I think there's been an awakening in the last couple of years, and particularly in the last year, on the importance of policy and regulation to growing in this sector. And I think increasingly companies are making these investments. Generally, I mean, and certainly this is what we advocate, the folks who are doing policy and regulatory, they're part of your go-to-market and sales organization. We often get referred to as like the policy and regulatory folks, but we're helping with go-to-market and we're helping with sales too because it's all intertwined. And frankly, policy and regulation, if you're a founder, you should think about it, it is sales. Fundamentally, it is sales. You are going out and you are trying to explain to someone why they should buy your idea 
to make a change in the market that then is good for your commercial side, of course, but it also is trying to achieve a policy objective, which the policymaker regulator cares about. So it's sales. And so the teams that do this well, the companies that do this well, I think, are the policy and regulation. That team is highly integrated with the sales and marketing organization and also to the strategy organization because it has an impact on short-term revenue and certainly has an impact also on sort of the medium term. I think there's more happening in that space than I've seen in the past and less companies putting people on the periphery, which I think big companies historically have, you've got your regulatory or policy team sitting in DC somewhere, not integrated centrally with the business. I think companies are beginning to move away, at least at the startup realm from that model. And you had mentioned that you think in some cases, politics might make a better transition into innovation than policy in terms of prior experience. What about DC versus homegrown? Do you ever see great policy people grown from the outside within these companies or from other functional areas or sectors? Or do you need to come from working in policy or politics to be an effective functional policy person within a tech company? I don't think you have to come from government. In fact, sometimes coming from government can be an obstacle, particularly if you're there too long, because I think the transition, as I said earlier, can be challenging. So, I mean, we recently hired a guy, Brian Coyman, who's fantastic, who was from OmConnect. And he went straight from policy school at Stanford to OmConnect and was there, joined them at Series A, was there five years, and we were lucky to recruit him away to join us. He's excellent. I don't think you need to have someone who comes out of DC. And in fact, from a policy perspective, depending on like exactly the problem you're trying to solve as a company, I actually think folks who have some of that state experience are really valuable because at least in the US context, so much of policy relating to energy, relating to water, relating to waste, transportation, it's at the state and local level. And so having folks who understand the state and local side of this ecosystem, I think is really valuable. But we've also, over the years, recruited people, trained people who've never worked in government. I do think I'm a big believer in the well-rounded professional. Folks who I think are the best of the best had had a mixture of experiences, either in, let's say, government of some variety, advocacy of some variety, and the private sector. If you've worked in at least two of those three, I think you become a lot more dangerous and meaning more effective and just have more empathy and understand the different kind of folks you're trying to work with than if you've been only in startup world or only in government or only in advocacy. Does that make sense? It does. If someone from the Biden administration called and said, Jim, you and your firm do such great work in climate tech across such a broad range of sectors, and we want to know what's the policy that's going to move the needle the most to foster climate tech innovation and the clean energy transition in general, where should we focus? What would you tell them? <laughs> this is the magic question. This is the magic wand question. I ask this on job interviews sometimes. If you could wave <laughs> a magic wand, what would you change in the market that would be great for your business? And you've just turned the tables on me. And I have not prepared an answer for this one, Jason. Well, and I know because when I'm on the other side and people are interviewing me, this stuff trips me up all the time. So it's easy from my seat. I just get to ask the questions. The cop-out answer is, Jason, there is no single policy because of how complicated this all is that would magically solve it. I mean, that's the problem. I mean, and the things that everyone has historically talked about that are big are really difficult, if not impossible, to get done, like 
cap and trade or a carbon tax. And so like, let's not even talk about that because I don't want to waste our time debating their merits because I just don't think they're going to happen. So I don't know, based on what I'm seeing, is there one big thing? I think we got to fix the tax code across the board to align it in a way that incentivizes investment across a whole different range of the technologies that we need both to advance and accelerate electrification as well as to accelerate carbon capture and sequestration. And I think that's the place, frankly, over the next several months, where's the biggest opportunity in the Biden administration to make the biggest impact on climate from a changing the market dynamic. It's going to be, I think, in changing some of that tax code. And then the other one, which people talk about, and I think is real, although really hard, I think FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, under this administration can do a lot of things and is beginning to try to, to make renewable integration easier, really bucking up our transmission system. And like we have the most balkanized energy system in this country. Again, magic wand territory. If you could actually have one or two wholesale markets covering the entire country instead of a hodgepodge of markets and then a whole portion of the country where there's no market at all, I think that would be huge. Are we going to get there anytime soon? I'm less confident, but I do think a FERC with a mandate can do a lot. And I think Congress, at least for the time being, when it comes to the tax code, partly because of the rules around reconciliation and budgets versus actually authorizing legislation, again, to get into the weeds, I think that's where you're going to have big impact potential, at least. How's that? So I don't know why you gave me the disclaimer that it's an unanswerable question if you then proceeded to give me a great answer. (laughs) Well, I was buying myself time. Come on. You know, as a good answerer of questions, you fumble the ball a little bit on purpose to buy yourself time to come up with a decent answer. How's that? (laughs) I buy it. You buy it. So for anyone listening who's intrigued by the work that you're doing at the Ad Hoc Group, where do you need help? Who do you want to hear from? If you're trying to figure out how to grow a climate tech startup and you're looking for some support and some insight and think that policy regulation in particular may be something you need to understand to succeed. I would love to hear really from anyone. I always love to learn. And the worst thing we end up having is a new relationship and to get to know each other. And if there's ways that we can help directly, great. And if not, Jason, as you and I, I think, done offline in conversations, this is an amazing ecosystem I mean, that you've built at MCJ. And I think a lot of us in this space have this broader ecosystem of mission-driven folks in broader climate land. And I love meeting more folks on the same journey that I'm on, that you're on, and helping them, whether that's working with them directly or whether it's just making a couple of intros that are going to help them if we're not the right folks to help them directly. Raiden, is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? I just want to say thank you both for inviting me, but for what you're doing to build this community. From a startup respect perspective, just what you've been able to build. I think you just recently had your one-year anniversary of getting this community up and running. It's impressive. It was a gap in the market, and I'm happy to be part of the community. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Jim, and thanks for the work that you're doing as well. Awesome discussion, and best of luck to you and the whole Ad Hoc team. Thanks, Jason. I really appreciate it. Hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey... You can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22 
where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.